Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 160 today. We're going to be talking visionary psychedelic experiences with author Matthew Palmieri. Um, you can check out his link down below the video. Uh, he's written tons of books. His most, re- uh, most recent one is Death, A Love Story. Um, and uh, yeah, just check out his books. He's got some uh, awesome stuff in the range, too. He does science fiction. He does, you know... Um, you name it, he's he's got a he's got a wide list there. Um, also, check us out at mindescapepodcast.com um, and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash mindescapepodcast. Uh, for $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content and episodes, and we have some other tiers in there as well. And also, one more thing, go to indrasweb.org and sign up to get an alert when the app goes live. Indra's Web is an app that we created designed to uh, help you know people with uh, different theories and hypotheses connect. It's it's basically a social media platform for open minds, which that doesn't seem to exist right now out there. So that's why we created it. Um, and uh, yeah, so without further ado, what's going on, Matthew? Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And uh, now you're, you're Mike and you're Maurice on the yes. correct. Make sure yeah. I get everything right. Maurice um, is the little Irish man there. Too. <laughs> hey, I'll do a jig later for you. No, holy blue charges. I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood, so. Um, all right, all right. Beautiful. Yeah, um, so, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so, um, you, you know, you've written a bunch of books, but the it, everything you mentioned centers around um, your love and fascination with shamanism and plant medicine and psychedelics and all that kind of stuff. So uh, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory on how you got into it and, um, you know, what initially drew you into the whole subject? Sure, and just cut me off and jump in at any time because once you hit my on button, I'm hard to stop. So we don't just... really cut people off. I mean, yeah. uh, we just let people go. Oh, good. Well, I'll, I'll definitely spew for you. Beautiful. So um, I, I've had a lifelong love affair with altered states. In back As soon as I learned when I was little how to hyperventilate, I hyperventilated all the time. And then I went to sniffing glue. Um, and then I discovered weed and, and drinking. I, I drank for a while, but I was never. What age was all this? This so I was probably hyperventilating around seven or eight. Um, I actually started smoking cigarettes when I was seven. Long story there, but we, we won't go off on that tangent. Um, and then I think I was around thirteen or fourteen when I discovered sniffing glue and weed. And this was back. Uh, let me see, around 69 or 1970. Hmm. So soon after that, I discovered LSD. And uh, we used to get LSD from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT, which we called Mental Institute for the Touched. <laughs> and our connection there was a chemist named My Favorite Martian. That's what we called him. And back then, back then in those days, um, <laughs> I used to get four-way hits of LSD, 90 bucks for 100 hits, 
it took me doing it six, seven, eight times before I could handle the whole hit. And it seemed like the smaller it was, um, the more powerful it was. And uh, so I would get 90 bucks for 100 hits. I'd sell them for two bucks a hit. I would double my money and have 20 hits for me, and I'd go on a binge. And, and you know, the 100 hits lasted like two or three days. That was it. Hmm. So I had that fascination with that. And I went all the way through lots of stuff. I went through the military. Uh, I was in the Air Force. And I was doing things regularly. And then I got turned on to a couple of things. Uh, being a vegetarian and also um, sort of uh, the whole peace and love thing. And I got really deep into yoga. So I was uh, 21, 22 at this point when I moved uh, here to San Diego, where I'm living now. And I decided at the ripe old age of about 22 to, to go baseline. And I stopped doing everything. I would not take a, an aspirin if I had a headache. I didn't drink coffee. I was a, a vegetarian. And I stayed baseline because I thought all these things in my mind, all these things I'm doing here and there, wonder what it's like to not be influenced by anything. Hmm. Baseline. So um, I went baseline for 13 years. Wow. Yeah, and I stayed a vegetarian uh, during all that time and got really clean. And then uh, a couple of interesting things happened. Uh, I, I started smoking a little weed because I've always loved it from a friend. Of course. But, yeah, but more importantly, um, I was also budding in my writing career then. And I've been teaching um, at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and the Southern California Writers Conference, both of them for over 30 years. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the work of Ray Bradbury or not, but he did Something Wicked This Way Comes, The Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451. Mm -hmm. I was very blessed to have him as a mentor through, through the conference, as well as Charles Schultz of uh, Charlie Brown Peanuts fame um, and a number of other big names who took me under their wing. So I went to the conference my second year there, and I read a story. Um, I was in a workshop with a woman, and she wouldn't, you wouldn't read your story. She would read your story so nobody know, would know who wrote it. And then she would get comments from people, and they wouldn't kind of care what they said because they didn't know who wrote it. So nobody would be shy about what they had to say. So I wrote a story about a, a, a guy who went into the jungle and found a shaman and didn't listen to what the shaman said. And one of the things that used to happen to me when I used to do the acid, I was, I was thinking that I was going to lose my mind and never come back. So that's what I wrote the story about. The guy loses his mind, kills his girlfriend, kills himself. And I, and she read it in the workshop and I got a standing ovation and I got a fiction award for it from, you know, a big 400 people in the conference uh, that year. So one of the wonderful ladies was a lady by the name of Marjorie Livingston, Ph.D. She was then 78. She had been part of the original LSD experiments uh, in Hawaii in the 50s, and she had an article in the Hawaiian Medical Journal. So she insisted on giving me the article and begged me for the story. And, of course, I'm like, yeah, are you kidding me? Here you go. Sure. So uh, I did that. We had a wonderful exchange. And then the conference was over. And like maybe two weeks later, I get a box of cassette tapes in the mail. And I said, what, what, what is this? So I pulled out the cassettes and I put it in and I started listening. And I heard this voice. 
Well, you know, people, when you do psychedelics. Uh Oh, I know who that is. I know. I bet you do. Right. So I'm like, who is this weirdo? Right. And it was, of course, Terrence McKenna. So I was blown away because when I got past his voice and I started listening to what he had to say, I was like, holy moly, this guy's like next level. Yeah. You know, so um, as a result of that, I got, uh, I think, was his best book, uh, Food of the Gods. Yep. You know, I inhaled it. The uh, stoned uh, ape theory is pretty much where. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down with that. So um, I was all like, wow, you know, here's this guy, Terrence McKenna, and there could actually be um, spirituality connected with psychedelics. Something never crossed my mind because when I was younger, all I wanted to do is, how is this going to mess? You know, what's this going to do to my brain? Let's try this. Let's try that. And I, and I tried everything I can get my hands on. So um, I was very impressed by that, and I did more research. Um, and then I found out two, two things happened. One is uh, I got his book that he wrote with uh, Dennis. It was uh, by, they put the name Austin Oric. And it was a mushroom growers guide. And I went out and I spent a thousand bucks. This was back in the nineties. And I spent a thousand bucks and I bought all the stuff and it took me three tries and I grew my own mushrooms. And for the first time in my life, I took mushrooms with uh, a spiritual intention. Did you do uh psilocybicubensis? Yes, sir. Yeah. That was like, now I get, they got all these like, I don't know. They got golden rod or golden this or that. Yeah, they, there's all sorts of different ones now. But yeah, I mean, um, obviously there's the the species found in nature that are that have different types, you know. But then there are ones now. It's almost like how you have strains of cannabis now. There's yeah. strains of uh, mushrooms. Yeah, it's all it's it's all changed. This was back in the olden days, you know, when it was, <laughs> was available. Um, so um, I had. A lot of experiences with that. Now, um, I have a number of books all around different things, and as I had mentioned, but I was researching a book on, uh, I was thinking about the werewolf mythology, which is called Lycanthropy, because I was writing some horror. And Lycanthropy goes into the shape-shifting mythologies, and shape-shifting mythologies, the, the biggest concentration of them are in South America. Mm. Um, and and you also have, in my humble opinion, the greatest combination of visionary plants and things there. And they all go back to the shape-shifting mythologies, which I was fascinated with. So I went to the UCSD library here in San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego. And I spent lots of money and did lots of research about uh, visionary plants. And I came across ayahuasca. And when I read The Vine of Death, in the vine of the soul, I was hooked. Hmm. I had to do it. And people were like, oh, you're so brave. You go into the jungle and do that. And I went, it's not even about that. It's like I couldn't not do it. So I read, I read, uh, I got a lot of stuff. By, uh, and I can elaborate on any of these names if they're not familiar with the, uh, the listeners. But um, I, I read a lot by Richard Evans Schultes. Yeah, uh, we've talked Gordon about Austin. Yep. We've talked yeah. about yeah all the 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 big guys from the olden days and we've had Tom Lane on quite a few times and he's yeah, um dude. he's he's mentioned them quite a few times on our episodes with him yeah yeah he's a he's he, Mr Mushroom right yeah <laughs> so uh, uh, but I I wanted to ask you too before you go any further um yeah. 
when you started to read all these these different books and get into this whole thing um did you have like a sense of something mystical going into it and um how did that evolve as you got further into this work or these subjects yeah good good question so i was obsessed and i and going at it with a spiritual intention i started to have a few synchronicities that were sort of uh pointing the way um synchronicities when they first start to happen to me they're a sign that you're on the right track mm. and um i always like to say you can knock on the door of spirit and then the day it knocks knocks back it scares the hell out of you right I, you know, which did on a number of occasions in different ways. And so I thought, okay, I'm onto something here. And then um, I did all that research on my own. I had tons of it. And um, I was walking past uh, a head shop in uh, Pacific Beach here in San Diego. And something told me to go in. I don't know. You know, I hadn't been in a head shop for a while. So I went in and uh, I saw High Times Magazine. And I went, holy Holy moly! I'm trying to watch my language here. Um, you can you can swear. I mean, as long as it's not excessive, I think we're good. <laughs> Usually, Pete, we could slip a few in. You know. All right. Well, you know the Irish Catholic thing. I grew up in Dorchester and Boston, <laughs> so there's some very general uh, language. But anyway, I, I got drawn in, and I went into this head shop, and there was High Times magazine, and I said, "Holy shit, that thing's still around?" Because I remembered it from the '70s. You right. know, when it when it was first out, I was I was an avid reader of it. And I went, wow. So I went over and I picked it up and I flipped it open. And right exactly where I flipped it open, it was an ad to these entheobotany seminars. And all of these people pretty much, uh, except Schultes, who was too old then, but all of these people I've been researching on my own were presenting. And I was like, wow. So that was in 96. And I went up to San Francisco for the first one. Um, I did it all on credit cards. I spent 550 bucks. I had two full shopping bags of books. I met Ann and Sasha Shogun, met Jonathan Ott, uh, met a lot of people. And I found out that they were doing these entheobotany seminars at the Maya ruins um, nice. in Palenque and Chiapas. And uh, the first one I went to was in January of 98, and Terrence McKenna was there. So I got to meet Terrence. I like to call him Mr. T, by the way. Um, I met uh, Terrence there, and uh, my first short story collection, The Small Dark Room of the Soul, was out then. Um, and I gifted him with it, and he really dug it. Um, he invited me to come visit him in um, Hawaii. Because, uh, you know, Terrence, uh, he always had that literary bent, mm -hmm. you know, which I really liked. So we had a good connect, you know, we traded numbers. He invited me to go visit him um, in Hawaii. I didn't get to do that. But um, I went to the, the seminars. That was the first one was in Ushmal. And then the next three were in Palenque, Chiapas, at the Maya ruins there. And I got to meet, you know, him, Paul Stamets, um, all the people who were the big names at the time. I, I got to know Christian Reich, uh, Germany's leading expert in shamanism. I was you know, Paul Stamets was there. Um, they were all there, and it was a week long. And they would, they would, so they would present in the morning. There would be a morning presentation, an afternoon presentation, and an evening presentation by all these different people. And it was, aside from all these psychedelic authorities, there were anthropologists, musicians, and Sasha's acolytes would come, and all these chemists would come with their new concoctions. So there were all, always lots of things to try 
there too. So it was this big uh, experience where I got really involved with the community uh, deeply at that point. Now, flash forward uh, right toward the last one around 2000 is when Terrence was diagnosed with that brain cancer. Mm-hmm. And they were glioblastoma or something. Yeah, the the big one. And there's a lot of speculation. You know, he had a he had a satellite telephone um, on Hawaii. There's a lot of speculation that it came from that. But however it came, it came pretty quick and it happened rapidly. So sad. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was it was like whoa. You know. So um, they were having his last conference in Hawaii. It was the All Chemical Arts Seminar. And I couldn't make it because my historical novel, Land Without Evil, was coming out. So my friend was going, and I called him right when the, when the books first came from the printer, and my publisher called me. And um, I got the first copies, the very first copies of, of Land Without Evil, this historical novel. And I called my buddy, um, Jacques, who goes by Paloca. His, his music opens the Psychedelic Salon. Um, and he was very close with Terrence. That's a whole another side story. But anyway, I called him and I said, are you going to the all chemical thing? This is like 10 o'clock at night. And he says, yeah, I'm going. I says, when are you leaving? He says, I'm leaving in the morning. And I said, what time are you going to bed? He said, I'm not. I'm pulling an all-nighter. And I said, I'm on my way. So I put together a care package for Terrence with the book and some stuff. Because, you know, even though I hadn't seen him, we had to connect. Right. I drove from San Diego up to L.A., uh, handed it over to Jacques. We smoked a couple of spliffs. Um, then I drove back. I got home at six in the morning and started slamming coffee. And I went and I worked all day. And Jacques brought Terrence. He hand delivered the book. And um, it may have been the last book Terrence ever read. He carried it around with him um, all over the seminar. Two weeks after that, I was going to my first ayahuasca session here stateside. And I ran into, it was the first time I met Lorenzo from the Psychedelic Salon. I don't know how much you're familiar with uh, him and his work with the Psychedelic Salon podcast, but it was one of the first. Um, and, I, and I met him. And we were talking, and oh, I'm a writer. Yes, I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> and, and they were talking about this book. They were wondering about this book. What was this book? That, because they had been to the Alchemical Arts Seminar, and they were wondering about this book that Terrence had been reading during the whole thing. So I says, yeah, I'm a writer. My book just came out, and I brought him down, and I popped my trunk, and there was Land Without Evil, the book that Terrence had been reading, and they both freaked out. Oh, my God, hmm. that's the book. We were wondering where it was and who wrote it and all that. So we ended up connecting deeply like that. That's awesome. So, yeah, yeah. So last little two cents here. Um, I had religiously recorded all the seminars, all the lectures at the Entheobotany seminars. So I had about four boxes of cassette tapes. I had Christian Reich walking around the ruins talking about the real traditions of there. Giorgio Samarini at the time was like the main guy who had been working with Iboga in Africa. Uh, and in Sasha Shogun, you know, all, all, the, all the unusual suspects. Um, and so uh, I wanted to but, ask you, uh, like I mentioned before, we got a Last night I was watching the episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, the, um, the you know about um, Sasha and Lemaire yeah. and, and the synthesis that they were doing with MDMA in the early years. Now, I saw like they talked about how when they tested some of these things, they took people to like Palenque and tested some. I think I don't know if it what which exact uh, 
um, compound it was, but it was like it was something similar to like two CD or something like that. It was two so, CT seven. Okay, so when they do that, um, what what's the, what's going on there? Can you do you know like how they set yeah. that up or? Yeah, I was part of that study. Um, so there was a I don't know if you ever heard of Casey Hardison. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think he's in that episode actually that I was just talking about. It was he. He synthesized LSD and got in trouble in London yep. and then came back yep. to, okay. Yeah, so Casey was part of that. I was all wrapped up in the middle of that uh, in some scary ways. Sure. <laughs> but uh, Casey, uh, he's out now. He's been back stateside for a few years. Casey's a bit of a mad genius. Mm. Um, he's very intense. He can be hard to take. Um, but he's been a bro. And so, uh, as I mentioned a little while ago, people would come to these entheobotany seminars in Palenque, and these different chemists would bring different um, substances to try, mostly, you know, uh, Sasha specialties. So one of the big ones was uh, 2CT7. And um, we all got some, and Casey, um, Casey was very educated, and Casey created the study. He did a form, uh, you know, very formalized, like university type study. Um, he got it accepted in a couple of places. And, you know, he, you know, you took this, you did that. How much did you take? What's your body weight? What was your experience? You know, a good about three pages. Hmm. Um, and we all participated. We were all trying everything anyway. Um, especially I had some mega 5-MEO days down there. In fact, I took Casey on his first 5-MEO journey. And... Uh, Hundreds, you know, McDonald's says billions served. Well, I can say hundreds and hundreds served. Um, I, you know, I, I did. I took a lot of people. Um, there was a 10-year period there in the 90s where I was taking everybody and their mother, and I was always careful about it. That, that that's you know a, a whole nother thing. Sure. But um, it was a great it was a great environment because all of these wonderful minds, literally from all over the world, came, and the guy who put it all together. Uh, had been in Sasha Shogun's. He was he was part of Sasha's original study group. So um, he was friends with Terence, and he became an expert in ayahuasca, and that was my uh, entry into that whole, you know, that whole world of it. Sure. Um, um, so when you when they did these, um, was there, you know, you're in you're at Palenque, you're doing this new compound. Um, What's the experience like? Is is do you have like a connection to any sort of like ancient mysticism? Is there any of that, or is it just straight yeah. in the moment stuff, or what's going on? Yeah, it's it's an amplifier. I've got my own thoughts about things over the years, and when people ask me these days if something's any good, I tell them I'm the wrong person to ask because <laughs> I've done so many things at this point, and um, and one of the things I always say is um. In many respects, it's the integration between the ceremonies and the experiences that are actually more important. If, if you don't, you can get shown something and shown things, but if you don't act on them in your regular life, then you just really waste, you're not putting it into practice. So um, one of the things, and if I get off track, you can pull me back. No, you're, one you're the, fine. Okay, one of the things that went on is they were making these compounds back then. In fact, even back then, 5-MeO was legal. And they would make a compound and... Uh, they didn't even make it illegal till like 2011, right? Something like that? Something like that. I was very deep into it. 
for 10 years in the 90s. And then some people got out of control and were irresponsible and some bad things happened. Mm -hmm. And I eased out of that whole scene. But, um, you know, if I know I'm going off track a little bit, but if I never, ever do anything ever again, I'm fine because I'm in a constant state of integration. I like to think I'm permanently altered. And with all these dietas I've done in the jungle, um, I've done I've done a dozen 10 day ones and a number of other experiences with all that. It's all about subjectivity and, and perception. So um, when these substances would come along, they would first be very sort of rare and exotic and we'd try them and then they would get popular. And then of course, if they got too popular, then they would make them illegal. And then the chemists would go in and they, they, they tweak like one atom and change the substance, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. And, and so I was in that whole thing and I was, you know, I was getting regular research chemicals mailed to me. And it, like I say at the time, and it was all legal. So they would ask different things. Now, now I have this thing through my studies of shamanism that I, that I, uh, subscribe to, for lack of a better word, and in somebody probably told me this, but this is my experience and this is my opinion. And by the way, everything I say is only my opinion, and everything I do is only in my universe. Um, everybody's entitled to their own, and I like to think that everything I say and do and write, I make it as an offering. People can take it or leave it. I don't care. I'm not looking to convert anybody, um, but I'm just putting it out there based on my experience. So in my humble opinion now at this point in the game, I look at LSD as an amplifier. So if you're paranoid, you're going to be more paranoid. Mm. If you're happy and goofy, you're going to be more happy and goofy. But in shamanism, there's a whole concept of power. Well, power in and of itself is neutral. It's what you do with it. Right. Same with a substance. If you go in and, you go in and you're doing an experience with a substance, what do you bring to it? What's your intention is going to color your experience? It's that whole subjective decisions that you make prior to going in. You say, oh, that was badass that I had a bad trip. No, that's bullshit. You right. had some issues, you know, and then the LSD amplified it. So I see LSD as an amplifier. I see MDMA as they call it an empathogen. Um, it's, it's more, uh, you can get some visuals here and there, and you can do things like candy flips and hippie flips and all that. Uh -huh. um, but um, in and of itself, it's the emotions uh, and the feelings that they, how you feel. Now, I see those, so the empathogens, I see those as amplifying sort of feelings and emotions, and of course, the whole love part of it. Um, and then I see LSD as visionary, but I see mushrooms and ayahuasca and uh, San Pedro or, or peyote, they're both mescaline is the active uh, component there. I see all of those as having an innate intelligence. Hmm. So do you think that has to do with it has like some sort of built in technology into the plan already in terms of like it is what it is. You're not synthesizing. You're not it's not a product of human intervention. It's just is what it is. From yeah. the earth simply. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I go with that, and I, and I can do a whole riff on the synthetics after if you want me to, but, but let's stick with that for a minute. One of the things that fascinated me about ayahuasca was the agreed-upon psychological landscape. Hmm. Anybody who's done ayahuasca or has spent any time in DMT, by the way, I consider smoking DMT as a soundbite for ayahuasca, um, but anybody who's done that 
they're familiar with the crystal castles. Uh, they're familiar with different, you know, uh, Terence talked about the self-transforming machine elves. Um, there are agreed upon things. You can be in New York City doing an ayahuasca ceremony, and you can be in the middle of doing the Amazon doing an ayahuasca ceremony, and jaguars uh, will still be prevalent. And, uh, you know, um, other, uh, for lack of better words, uh, entities. It doesn't matter where you are you'll get the same experiences. So those are deep-seated um, psychological archetypes. Um, and they're deep-seated concepts that are, are very deep in the psyche, or the human psyche, collectively, as a human race. So when you, you can do ayahuasca in different places, uh, but when you do do it in the jungle, you're in its environment, you're in its home, and you're also working with the dieta and a number of different helper plants uh, that are that tie in with the experience in different ways. So, um, yeah, that's things- something. Uh, just to cut you, sure. I wanted to expa- expand on that. Yeah. We had uh, who I don't know, I forget who. Oh, maybe it was Mike from Mikeadelic podcast when he was on. But we were talking about how I brought, I mentioned, you know, if you do um, ayahuasca in in like you mentioned in the South America or in the jungle or whatever. Does that, is it the archetypes that come out from your environment or is it something within the compounds, within the actual active, um, you know, like uh, the, the DMT or the uh, Harmala or something like that? Or is it, does it have to do with, like I said, like the environment? Because as opposed to, let's say, somebody doing like a Middle Eastern analog where, you know, they're doing Paganum Harmala with, uh, you know, Phalaris grass or something. And would that be, or Acacia, you know, the big talk is Acacia in the Middle East and were they doing yeah. that over there in ancient times? So do you think that has to do with, is it like the setting, set and setting kind of a thing, or is it more of the actual compounds, do you think? The, the answer is yes, but I will elaborate on that. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple of things. One thing, uh, by the way, I have another book that gets really deep into this. It's one of the longest book titles ever. It's called The Center of the Universe is Right Between Your Eyes, But Home is Where the Heart is. Mm. And it gets right into, yeah, it's deep into the ayahuasca experience and subjective perception and, and all that. So you can take the word energy and you can take the word spirit and they're the same thing. Mm. They're energies. So, you know, I'm talking to you guys right now. You're talking to me. I have a particular personality or who I am. You know, grew up in Dorchester, right? All that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my experiences makes me uniquely who I am. So I have a particular kind of energy. Uh, you could think I'm the greatest thing in the world. You could think I'm the greatest, biggest jerk in the world. You could think I'm scary. You could think I'm funny. But it's all about the energy that I carry. So every individual, all of us have our own unique personalities. We are each our own unique spirits. We are each our own unique energies. So in the jungle, all the different plants and animals are actually different energies or spirits. And that's how they address them. So um, they say that ayahuasca is the mother of the plants, of all the other plants. And then the other plants, the different dietas I have done, uh, work in conjunction with it in, in different ways and have influenced my journeys in different ways by particular aspects of those plants. Um, it's funny because I'm, I'm writing a sequel to my memoir right now. And I'm, I used to, when I, when I went to the jungle, I recorded all my experiences on cassette tapes right after the ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And it, 
I didn't want to write because I'm a writer. So I would do it, be, you know, four or five in the morning pre-dawn and I'd take my plant bath and I'd sit there in the buff air drying with my cassette recorder and record the experiences straight out. So right now I've just been working on a chapter from 18 years ago where I worked with a, a rare plant called Ushbawasha. And they talk about how Ushbawasha helps you to remember. And one of the things that happened um, in the jungle to me numerous times is that my dreaming experiences and my ayahuasca experiences would play into each other. They would play off of each other. And because it's all this subconscious material that is being um, brought up. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, prehistoric speaking, they would, you do this, you do the plant diet, which is very strict. It's either um, oatmeal, quinoa, or rice boiled, a piece of fish, or a piece of chicken sometimes. And then you get one plant or a number of plants that you have every single day. You, take a, you have to drink a pitcher of that. Mm -hmm. And roughly an ayahuasca ceremony every other night. Um, if you get to be an old dog like me, you also get two by yourself during the day alone. Mm -hmm. Um, but you do that. And so you, you're taking these plants, you're taking this very restricted diet. There's no salt, no sugar, no scents, no salt, no shampoo, no scents of any kind. And you're taking in these plants every day with this very bland diet that cleans you out. And of course, when you go into the ayahuasca session, you're shitting and puking half the time, right? Mm -hmm. And you're getting cleared out like that. And then, of course, you get all stinky and blah, blah, and you come back and, they, and you get a plant bath. They bring different plants to you uh, every day. You crush up the leaves, you mix it with water, and you take a plant bath. So you're getting cleansed inside out and backwards. Now, what happens over time, over a few days, is you begin to smell just like the jungle. Now, traditionally, I love to use a jaguar as an example. If uh, a tribe was going to go on hunt for a jaguar, they would do the dieta, they would do the ceremony, and they would begin to smell like the jungle. You smell like the plants. It's one of the reasons, among others, that they say you shouldn't have sex. There are other reasons, but don't have sex around ceremonies because there are pheromones. Hmm. Jaguars, their sense is 500, 1,000 times more than humans. They can smell. Smell is one of their primary modes of um, operation. So... In my experience with ayahuasca, I've gone through a number of experiences in my journeys, and then they played out later in my life. And it's like, oh, okay, I've already been through that. I know how to handle that. And if I hadn't been through it prior in the visionary state, I might not have handled it so well, but I did. So what they would do is, is they would go and they would do this, and then they would hunt the jaguars in their visions. And then when they came back to the real world, so to speak, following through with the actual physical hunt was just like, wrapping up, they had already done the hunt in their visions, in their journeys. Mm -hmm. So the point of this is that if you would do the do these this extended dieta and you go hunting for a jaguar and you smell like the jungle and you're not letting off pheromones and all that, you're invisible to the jaguar because you are not smelling human. Mm -hmm. You smell like all the plants you've been taking. I, I came back one year for my, my uh, girlfriend at the time and she said, you smell like the jungle. And I said, I am the jungle. Hey. <laughs> she loved that. Yeah. Um, so, 
No, I was just going to ask you. So do you think, though, like, because there's the videos of, like, the Jaguars chewing on the vines and having these almost like catnip to them and they're having something hallucinogenic happen to them, it appears, too. So do you think, like, I don't know, I just, because there's people that have never been to the jungle that have never, um, you know, been down there that have these do that these rituals at home or do DMT or whatever the case may be and they see these archetypes and they have never been there so what do you think that is I guess that was my initial question is like what what aspect of these psychedelics produces these archetypes like what's going on there in your opinion yeah in my in my humble opinion um, one of the things that happens in the dieta is the boundaries between your conscious and your subconscious blur you're not on a normal schedule, you're not eating normal, you're taking these visionary plants and your subconscious rises up and it comes up in your dreams and in your visions. It all, all this subconscious stuff rises to the surface. Now over the years, I've gone through my own personal traumas, many years of delving into my shadow and facing the dark and dealing with and resolving and coming to terms with what's inside of there. And the more I've done it, the more I, after a while, when I got through my main primary personal stuff, the major big stuff that goes way back, I started tapping into the collective. Mm. Now, if anybody's familiar with Jungian psychology, there's the subconscious, and then there's the deeper levels and the deeper levels, so you get more and more, you know, there's the ego and the id and all that, right? Mm -hmm. And there's the collective. And in the collective, there are the archetypes um, that we hold uh, as a, as a race, um, I'm sure you guys are somewhat familiar with the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell. Sure. So, so one of the fascinating things of Campbell and the journey is that he realized that these deep-seated beliefs were worldwide regardless of the culture. Mm -hmm. When I took an honors course in anthropology and I found out that the myth of the flood was universal, so to speak, you know, on the planet, and there were actually like remote Amazonian tribes who had nothing to do hardly with Western culture, and they had the myth of the flood. Right. That, that fascinated me. I'm like, wow, look at the roots of all of that, right? And so that's what started me digging, um, you know, deeper and deeper into shamanism. So I think the more you delve into the subconscious, the more you delve into the collective energies that we all hold. I mean, you know, in some respects, we all have, generally speaking, a fear of death or a fear of snakes, the things that endanger us. They, they've been so programmed into us through life experience that they're instinctual. And once they're instinctual, they go on autopilot. Mm -hmm. So Like epigenetics. You, exactly. So when you go in search of um, the mysteries of the subconscious and you delve and you, and you go into the, the, the dark, terrifying, hellish places and you experience them, then in, the deeper you get into the personal subconscious, the more you get into the collective. One of the fascinating things, among others, with ayahuasca is that Richard Spruce, I think it was 1865, was one of the first Westerners to come in contact with it. And he called the active component telepathine. Mm -hmm. That got my attention. And I've had a number of telepathic experiences around ayahuasca. Um, I can't make them happen. They happen when they happen. There's no, it's like, I'm... I'm telepathic and I'm Karnak and I'm going to read your mind. It doesn't right. work like it happens when it happens for whatever reason. So um, I think when you when you do a ceremony, when you do it in a circle, you have the energy of the whole group 
at your personal disposal. It's a personal journey in a group setting. And when it's done right with somebody who's leading it with integrity, you can be vulnerable and go through your stuff. But I can't tell you how many times I've had a personal specific type of vision or experience and I was going to go say something about it when we were integrating later and somebody across the room would say the exact same <laughs> thing. They saw exactly what I saw. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, uh, One more thing, and I know you got a question here. I had a very powerful experience. Are you familiar with Pablo Amaringo? Uh, no. Pablo Amaringo is the first visionary ayahuasca painter, really. Okay. Um, I got to know him very well. I'm still, I, I did two years ago, two, a couple of years in a row, I did a visionary art tour with some of his students. Um, I'll have to check out his work. Yeah, Pablo Amaringo, look him up. Um, he's out of Pucallpa, amazing, amazing visionary painter. So I had the experience uh, one point when I first connected with him where I had all these particular visions in the jungle. And I came out of the jungle and I went to his painting school and he was showing us his latest work. And I saw the things I had seen in my visions in his work. And I went and I looked and I pointed and I said something. I looked at him and he looked at me and it's hard to explain, but there was this almost like an electric spark, like, <laughs> and he knew that I got it. Right. You know, there was that connect. And it was that validation that, hey, this shit's all in my mind and I'm taking psychedelic substances and I'm tripping balls, right? Mm -hmm. But when you come out of the jungle and you see in the painting that he's working on them what you just saw, I mean, right. you know, the, the other part of all this stuff is that no matter what, spirituality and all this stuff is highly, highly subjective. I, I could sit here right now and have a massive vision of Jesus Christ and I could go to heaven and all these realms and all that right here in front of you and you would never know because it's all in my mind. Right. Right? So, you know, I'm not going to snap my fingers and Jesus and all the angels are going to come down. Maybe they will, but it hasn't worked yet, right? Right. But, but the, the point being is that spirituality is all subjective. And shamanism is all about subjectivity. Sure. You know, and that, but that isn't that the most interesting thing about psychedelics too is the fact that um, it's one of these things where I, I've been pondering this a lot lately, and then even the recent book just came out, the Immortality Key by Brian Murescu, where he's talking about how you know Christianity is based on psychedelic uh, experiences that evolved from the Eleusinian mysteries into Neoplatonism into early Catholicism. Um, but then, I mean, I've been thinking about this even before, way before this book came out, and I was just, you know, it just kind of added some physical evidence to things that I had already been pondering. But w when I look at the history of humanity and stuff, psychedelics is like the one thing where if somebody wrote, you know, you, you could understand what was going on in the Bible, or you could understand what was going on in these ancient manuscripts, or you could understand where some of these ideas and concepts came from, because we're living on the same planet as the ancient people did. And unless there was some completely alternate thing happening back then, I don't see where you would get a lot of that stuff. Maybe meditation, maybe deep prayer, something like that. But it's, 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 it's all re revolved it's all based on altered states, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think psychedelics is the thread. one where you can take, no matter who you are, there's some people that can't meditate, they've got too bad ADD or whatever, but anybody can take a, you know, a psychedelic and, and that chemical is going to react you know, in your yeah. body. And yeah. when that happens, you're going to experience weird things you've never experienced before. So yeah. to me, this is the one subject that's so fascinating because I do think it played a huge role in these 
the metaphysical ideas and metaphysics mm-hmm. and things that have pushed us even beyond the scope of what we probably thought we were capable of. Yeah, I got I got a riff on that. I'm I'm known for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and and anything I say is probably not original. I probably stole it somewhere, but we all you know, every everything's not. I mean, everything's exactly. taken from somewhere except for when yeah. you're on psychedelics, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of organized religion, um, Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. Muhammad went into the cave, and I always piss off Christians when I say this. But if, if you go into the desert and you fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I guarantee you, you'll be talking to God. All right. So, you know, the, the, the words of the prophets are the experiences of the prophets. I mean, let, let's just use Jesus for example, because he's, he's relatively well known. So Jesus had his experiences, whatever they were, whether they were real or mythical or whatever they were. And what's the first thing that happened? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote about it. Right. So now right. you have four interpretations from, from a series of events from four different perspectives, right. right? Then you take that, and then somebody took that. It was originally in Aramaic, and it gets translated, and somebody else translated it, and somebody else translated it into that. And some religious leader gets a hold of it, and he wants to change things, so he's going to tweak it. King James got a hold of it, and he wanted to screw more women, so he changed things around. So by the time we get it in modern times from these uh, visionary experiences from, you know, 2,000 plus years ago, or, or, and, and I'm just using Jesus in his example, there's other ones, from all those experiences that have been translated and rewritten and passed down countless times, you're getting, a, you know, it's the old thing of when you're in school, do you ever do that thing in school where you start a sentence at the beginning of the classroom, and by the time it gets to the end of the classroom, it's totally changed from what it was originally? Right. Telephone so, or something like you know. Yeah. So the the point of this is that shamanism and sham they say shamanism they say well the hell with the words of the prophets and the organized religions go and have your own experience because shamanism is based on direct experience. So what you bring you know it's like I have a Prius okay when I bought my Prius brand new suddenly I saw Priuses everywhere because I now had a Prius that right, I wasn't yeah. much attention to right. So we all take our preconceived uh, conceptions of reality that we have, and then we apply them across the board. So if I want to go and I want to contact Satan and I want to worship Satan, I could take probably ayahuasca or anything, and then chances are I'll have a satanic experience because that's my expectations. That's what I'm looking for. That's what my subconscious is uh, loaded up with, that stuff. Right. So, so it's more like a placebo in that regard. Um. Not yeah. in the fact that it's not having an effect, but just that it's allowing, it's whatever you're, it's like a mirror of whatever you're thinking or experiencing at the time. Yes, it's the subconscious and the things, things you may not think are important. Your subconscious will, you know, it, the, the, the subconscious language is emotional and conceptual. So when you are awake, as we are now, so to speak, so they tell us, consensual reality, right? Yeah. We have an agreed upon realm that we're sharing. Now, to navigate this realm, we have to use our left brain logic to function in the world. We have to navigate, we have to solve problems, we have to go hunt the mastodon, we have to do all that stuff. The right brain, generally speaking, um, is uh, not dominant. It's 
pushed aside. It's one of the reasons why, in my humble opinion, we're so screwed up now as a race and humanity and all that, because it's the repressed right brain feminine. Now, when we go to sleep at night, the left brain at some point gets a rest and the right brain comes out to play. And what happens? We have these bizarre dreaming experiences. They're, they're conceptual and emotional because they're coming from the subconscious that's been repressed. And you can be flying a black-winged horse in a dream and you're totally accepting of it. And you can have the weirdest situations in dreams and you're totally accepting of it. It's, yeah, this is the reality I'm in. And, and boom, you fly with it. Now, in indigenous cultures, dreaming and visions and waking reality, they don't separate them like we do. It's all the same. It's just a continuum. And when you continue on this path, particularly when you're doing the, the jungle diets and things like that, the worlds all start to blend over into each other. And in, in my personal experience, my waking life has become more dreamlike. My dreaming has become more real on occasions. And it's in between. So here's the, here's the thing. When you drink ayahuasca, your left brain is on and your right brain gets turned on at the same time. Hmm. And they're both going. Now, the, now, there's a concept of being intellectually centered, and I have found that the people who are more intellectually centered are the ones who struggle more with ayahuasca, and they typically go to hell more than other people because they're used to controlling their reality with their mind and their logic. And sure. suddenly, you know, they're in a situation that's unprecedented, and all of their strategies don't work anymore. They're, 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 they don't know what to do, and they freak. I, I had a renowned... I'm not mentioning any names, but I had a renowned PhD come to the jungle, and he spent his first three ceremonies curled up in my lap in the fetal position. Wow! He couldn't handle it. Yeah, it wasn't in his reality. So when you There's go, there's an element of like control, right? I think that that's it's the, like the loss of control. Like you're so used to controlling your environment that the second you realize you're not in charge anymore is like a very scary to somebody that's not used to that. I couldn't have said it any better. It's terrifying because all of your lifelong strategies don't work. And anybody who's done ayahuasca or DMT will tell you that shit comes fast and furious. I mean, you don't even have a time to take a breath. So when they get caught up in trying to figure everything out and make it happen then and they can't because the ayahuasca is overwhelming everything, then they, they go to hell and they get, they, they, get, they get their ass kicked because they're not rolling with it. When, when the real key comes to learning, learning it and then learning to dance with it. And then in learning to dance with it, there's sort of a give and take. And you have to accept that, yes, there are things that are more powerful than us out there. And you have to flow with it. So if you sit there and try to struggle to figure it all out, and it's happening fast and furious in this conceptual, emotional way that you're not used to functioning with, mm -hmm. you, you got to just roll with it. You can't control it. Right. And then in my humble opinion and in my experience, it's when you're integrating later. That's when your left brain, your intellectual mind is catching up with that rich stuff that you got from the ayahuasca that was just, right. you know, well, coming out. A few uh, minutes ago, you mentioned getting shown the light. I was just thinking, oh, that, you know, it's like that Grateful Dead lyric from Scarlet Begonias. Uh, Once in a while, you get shown the light in the strangest places if you look at it right, you know, something yep. uh, along those lines. And I think that obviously the that was huge in the psychedelics so they understand all these concepts but mm -hmm. i think that sums it up perfectly in terms of a psychedelic experience because um it is how you look at it and sometimes it takes a day or two to interpret what you just experienced and and it's it's all about um 
your perception of things. Yeah, a- absolutely. It's it's an adjustment because uh, in, in the in the words of the old Don Juan Carlos Castaneda stuff, they would say that you've shifted your assemblage point. Mm. Because you know I can't control the outside world, but I can certainly control uh, my interpretation of it and my reactions to it. Right. You know. So the ultimate thing, and I say this over and over again, it's all about subjectivity. And what I tell people is, if you're gonna, if anybody continues on this path. Even psychedelics in general, you're gonna hit the dark, and you can't. When I hear all these, you know, I, and my old coach used to say, the granola eaters. Well, I just want to see the light, and I just want to love everybody, and I just want to do MDMA, and I just want to love everybody. I say bullshit, <clears throat> because you can't have the light without the dark. Right. And how are you gonna learn it all if you don't see both? And the, and in my opinion, what you need to do is be able to find that objectivity, and then you can be in the light and embrace the light in the heavenly realms. And, and go to hell and remain somewhat objective throughout it all, knowing that, okay, I took a substance or I'm in this experience and I'm passing through it and it's going to pass. But you can't have the light without the dark. The more dark, the, the brighter the light and vice versa. And I've, I've experienced the, the extremes of them both. And they both um, lead me uh, toward the center. Mm-hmm. So, you know, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that, so, but that's a good point too. And also, um, Back to my point, what I was talking about being the basis of what we know come, you know, in, in terms of metaphysics and metaphysical mm-hmm. uh, realms and things, heaven and hell, um, what are the only ways you could experience it, right? Like a dream, medita- meditation, deep prayer. Um, but you would you experience hell th- that? So that's why I think that psychedelics have played a huge role in our evolution and our development, because at least even... Maybe even if you just want to say since civilization or since Gobekli Tepe or whatever the case may be, um, yes. that you know, these ideas came from somewhere. And if somebody experienced them, well, I mean, you could say, yeah, my life's hell right now. It sucks or something like that. But the what would urge or what would uh, influence somebody to like write something down or scribe something back then or chisel it into stone? It would be something visionary. So, you know, like you're mentioning, um, I just, again, I think that a lot of these play into it. And I wanted to pivot here and go into the whole, um, you know, the get your shit together after feeling from, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm my, my spirit psychedelic is, uh, psilocybin. I've always resonated the best with that. And, um, I've always had the best experiences and I've always, it's always been pleasant for me. Um, and it's also helped, you know, help me treat my own OCD and stuff like that. So, um, but uh, I want to talk about like w- when you come down from these experiences, you want to get your life in order. You want to figure things out. You want to uh, be a better person. But mm-hmm. in, at the same time, you look online now and you look at like the comment sections and people are still assholes. There's people on all psychedelic forums that are just talking shit to one another. And it's like you're doing psychedelics and you're also going to talk all sorts of shit to all these people. Like, what are you doing? You know, it's like a kind of a contradiction. So what do you think's going on there? Do you think it is the invention of the Internet and people are just able to see what other people are thinking? Or do you think it has to do with those people aren't holding on to that that message afterwards? You're not, you know. Yeah, I hear you. So there's a, there's a few angles to that. Well, I'll tell you when, some things from my experience. There was a woman came down years ago to do a dieta. It was my second year in the jungle. We did five ceremonies. She only did three. Can't do any more. I'm done. And then she wrote a book about ayahuasca, and everybody thought it was the greatest thing. 
and me and other people who had had more experience were somewhat enraged. What's this bullshit? Mm -hmm. So a lot of those people get what I call guru-itis. And they go and they have a revelation or they see something for the first time and then they think they're an expert and I'm enlightened and I know it all and they're they're off and running and they're, they're looking for followers and they're doing all this stuff and they've just scratched the surface. So, you know, I'm always pontificating. Mm-hmm. You can call me a writing guru. That's great. I've been one for years. You can call me a mentor, blah, blah, blah. But I'm nobody's guru. I'm no better than anybody else. Um, it's all about experience. You know, if we're all going to Boston from San Diego and I left a month before you did and I got there a month before you did, I got there a month before you did. But it doesn't make me any better. It just means I started sooner. Right. So one of the things that drove me uh, early in my career, I have a well-received historical novel, Land Without Evil, that was turned into a stage show, amazing stage show, 12 years ago in Austin. And one of the things that I I was really struggling for, I I found out about the story um, on an honors course in anthropology. It was called The Forest of Symbols, Orientation and Meaning to South American Indian Religions. And when I when I read the story that actually happened, I was like, nobody's written about this. Wow, I was blown away. And I spent two and a half years researching because much of what was in there was oral tradition that was getting lost. And I spent a lot of money on these archaic books by anthropologists who had spent time with the tribes because I wanted to preserve that information in that culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Western quote unquote scientific method civilization marched in. And these guys had wisdom going back literally to prehistoric times, and they just ran it all over and said, it's Jesus, and if it's not Jesus, I'm going to burn you at the stake, right? Right. You know, and what some of them did is they said, okay, you're telling me that it's Jesus, and you're going to kill me if it's not Jesus. But I, I, have, I have this spiritual energy that I've been culturally in my entire life of male spirituality, male polarity, male entity, male spirit. So I'll call it Jesus if you want, so you don't burn me at the stake. Right. But nonetheless, okay, I'll put your name on it, but for them it was the same thing. That's so we probably lost a lot of codices and... Oh, man, they just ran them over, you know, and this stuff, you know, I worked with guys even now in the jungle that were passing on oral traditions that you can't read about anywhere. Right. So one of my struggles, and I'm told I'm getting very good at it, um, I've spent over 30 years, is taking a non-rational visionary experience and writing it in a way that someone who's reading it, who could never have the experience, can read about it and get a sense and live vicariously through what I've experienced by my words. Hmm. And it's a challenge. The, the key is metaphor. Sure. You know, but, but so... It, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you guys right now. I'm stringing in words in an order. You're receiving them in an order. You're unpacking them in your mind, and you're creating in your minds, however good of a communicator I may be, or however good of a uh, receptive listener you guys are, you're putting together in your mind, and you're conceptualizing what I'm telling you vocally, but it's all serialized data, one word at a time. Right. When you get into intuition and the subconscious and all that, you can have 27 things. All of a sudden, you'll get a, a revelation. Oh, my God, that's all the same thing, right? That's intuition. Right. And it's superior. 
but it doesn't follow rationality. It's not it's not the divide and conquer you know scientific method. Sure. Um, so yeah. you have to incorporate it all. Do you think that uh, when you look at your experiences and all this stuff that um, do you think the more you've done it, it's it's and I think I asked you this earlier in a different way, but I don't know. If, I think we we got off track a little bit. S- over the years, obviously, you've done a lot of these ceremonies, you've done a lot of psychedelics, you've tried all the different compounds, um, you met all the people. Do you feel like the the whole psychedelic realm in general, whatever compound you want to talk about, has been demystified at all, or do you think it's more mystical than ever based on everything you've experienced? Uh, I hate to say it in this way, but the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> got us again <laughs> here's the thing I get I really get enraged because a lot of things are out of control because of all this this guruitis stuff yeah some stuff that's going on with 5-MeO that makes me insane yeah because it's irresponsible sure and the people I was involved with they got irresponsible and I was already distancing myself from them and somebody died because of irresponsibility. They weren't respecting it. This stuff is not for everybody. Not everybody needs it. It's not something to be messed with. It's ultimately serious stuff, and you're getting into deep-seated you know, uh, psychology um, of us, humanity, and what makes us tick. Mm-hmm. So I see the waters getting muddied, and I see these people setting themselves up as 5-MEO gurus, and I'm thinking to myself, let me see. I did that 20 years ago. I worked with it for 10 years. Um, I was lucky. Two years ago, I had a bro. He was really did good. I, I got to smoke the toad mm-hmm. when I was a, a tour in Florida. That was great. Uh, I returned home. I wanted to ask you, too, is there a difference between the the actual... Because I've Maurice and I have actually never done DMT. I've done most of the other psychedelics, but I've actually never done DMT. Does Is the toad experience different than the synthesized 5-MeO? Because I know you can get... Yeah. So, let me let me put this in a good way. There's pure mescaline, mm-hmm. and then there's peyote, and then there's San Pedro, Huachuma. Um, both plants have cactus. Uh, I'm sorry, have mescaline as a psychoactive component in them. Now, the quality of the experience on pure mescaline as opposed to the cactus, there are qualitative differences. I won't say one's better or all that, but it's different. It's mm. like, okay, I'm going to make a, I'm gonna make an omelet. Maybe I'll throw in some cheddar cheese. Maybe I'll throw in some paprika. Maybe I'll throw in some garlic, right? Mm. So it's going to change that experience to some degree by what is impinged upon it. Now, um, I always like to use the cactus as an example. The cactus has numerous other alkaloids, aside from the psychoactive ones. So when you take it in its natural state in the cactus, there is um, there's a quality to it that's different. So I noticed smoking the toad, ultimately... I don't know that there's any difference, but I notice a, there's a somewhat of a qualitative difference between the, the quote-unquote synthesized 5-MeO and the toad venom. Mm. Um, nothing blatant or over-the-top or, you know, life-shattering or anything like that. 
but there's a difference to the quality of it. And um, and I think it has to do with the fact that when you're when you're smoking toad venom, you're not smoking pure pure five meo. There are some other things in there, so it influences the experience. Just like you know, you could be an artist and you're doing this and that, and you want to throw in a splash of red or something. Um, I went through a number of years where we were mixing a little bit, three small bit of datura in the jungle. They call it toy with the ayahuasca. It brought different experiences. After we did that for oh, three, four, five years. Is that, the, is that a tropane, I think? Is, yes, it is. Uh, you are correct, sir. Yeah. Um, after we did that for four or five years, and the shaman said, you know, I'm not, we don't need to do that anymore. We're not doing that anymore. Um, the Shakruna has enough visual stuff in it um, to make a, a wonderful visionary experience. But, but there was a difference in the quality of the experiences. It's, mm. it's really hard to characterize, so there's a difference. But I, I have this thing about, the, people go on about, well, okay, this is for Toad Venom 5-MeO and this is synthesized 5-MeO. But when you break it down, even whatever's quote-unquote synthesized, when you break it down to the actual molecule in and of itself, it doesn't really matter for that molecule in and of itself whether right. it's synthesized or not. The molecule's a molecule. Right. I mean, from what I understand, the 5-MeO is more of like hyperspace, white light, spiritual type of a thing. And and then DMT is more uh, entities and, you know, tryptamine palaces and that kind of stuff. At least that's what I've experienced, you know, from interviewing different people and reading yeah. and watching and stuff. Yeah, we used to call the regular DMT the NNDMT. It's got those nitrogen right. atoms, right? We used to call that... Um, the power, and then we used to call the five meo the glory, mm. and um, and I did a lot with both of them, but man, I was you know somebody at one point way back called five meo hippie crack, and at the time I was a little resentful, but now looking back I can see that that's what they call nitrous now. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, we we're big fish, you know. We've been to many fish shows, and that's what they call uh -huh. uh, nitrous now. So yeah. Um, but uh, so when you, you know, you just brought up uh, Datura, though. So what's the, in your experience, what's the deal with, like, nightshades and tropanes and stuff like that? Because, again, I bring up that book, The Immortality Key, that just came out. A lot of that has to do with spiking wine in ancient Greece and tropanes yeah. and that kind of stuff. And you do get some effect. But uh, from what I've understood, it's not as pleasant, I guess, as others. But I don't, I don't know enough about it. That's why I was curious what your opinion was. Yeah, energetically, it's not something to be messed with. Like, we had a whole brew, and we only did one or two leaves, and I felt the difference. Hmm. And then some years back, I worked with a guy who had been trained with Dottora, and I smoked some of it. Um, and I could feel that energy. I could feel that spirit, and there was a, there was a kind of an edge to it. And I could see where you could really lose it messing with it. So other than smoking it, which I, which I did with somebody, like I said, who had been trained in it, um, I've seen some very weird things happen. Hmm. Um, and the root, friend, the root kind of looks like a person. I've seen a picture. They, oh, yeah. You can like look it up. The root looks like kind of like a stick figure of a person. Yeah. Well, like uh, a couple of years ago, I had a friend, and I poked in on Facebook, and there was all this crazy stuff he posted. I mean, it was like nonsensical. Mm-hmm. It was just nuts. 
And so the next day, uh, I waited till the afternoon, and then I called him, and I said, hey, bro, you okay? He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, what's all that crazy shit you posted <laughs> on Facebook, that nutty shit? He says, what are you talking about? I said, you posted this nutty shit on Facebook. <laughs> no. I said, go take a look, bro. He goes and looks. He's like, holy shit, I did that? <laughs> so to make a long story short, he had been clearing his yard, because it grows around here in San Diego. Um uh, all over the place. Okay. Um, he was clearing his yard, and he cleared out a bunch of datura, and he put it in plastic bags. And just doing that and getting it on his skin. Oh, wow. He lost his mind for the night. Wow. Had so a total so what, it just, it just, you know, got into his pores or something? Like the, uh, the yeah. juices from the root or something? Yeah, absolutely. Even just the leaves. It's that strong. Wow. Every every couple of years, I'll hear a story. You know, we got here in San Diego, we got the deserts, um, you know, just an hour and a half away, if that. And every couple of years, you hear a story about these teenage kids who went out in the desert and did the Torah and killed themselves or killed each other. You can really lose it. And I've heard stories in the jungle where they do it and they're gone for like three days. And then, then there are other plants that can bring them back. And one of the guys I spoke with some years back was saying that even even though he came back, he's still sort of like haunted by it. Wow. So it's very strong in the oh, enough scary. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's not way. I, I don't need to go there. You know, I've been in enough places with ayahuasca and everything else where I, I and I have a sense of that plant's energy, and I'm okay with it. And and, and as in everything else, I have deep respect for all of them. But I'm not going to do anything, you know, unless it's somebody who knows what they're doing. Sounds intense. Yeah. Um, have you, uh, what do you think about, uh, have you ever done a salvia uh, ceremony? Yeah. The shepherdess? Yeah. I did it a few times. The first time I did it was actually in Oshmal in 98. And this younger guy was so excited about it and he built it up so much that when I did it, I was disappointed. Did you drink? Because I know you're supposed to masticate the leaves. I smoked it. Yeah, I, I've I've smoked it too. I think smoking it is complete. I th- from what I understand, when you do the ceremony, you're supposed to uh, uh, masticate the leaves. It's similar to like a, a Maria Sabina traditional yeah. um, psilocybin ritual. Yeah, you can do it uh, as like a, a quid, you know, like like coca leaves, where you can just keep it in your mouth. Right. And there's also you can have the liquid. And you know, let it get absorbed that way. I heard that doesn't. I again, I, I hate to. It's just such a good reference point. But Hamilton's sure. Pharmacopoeia. There's an episode where he drinks it and nothing happens because the chemical structure breaks down. It's not. It's like water soluble or something like that. So it, it just doesn't yeah. react in your gut. But he, he, the next day, he masticated the leaves and said he had one of his better uh, psychedelic experiences. So obviously, uh, something with like constant compact uh, con- uh, contact with the mucous membranes or something like yes, that. I, I think, that, yeah. So, but yeah, smoking it. I mean, <laughs> I did that uh-huh. when I, when we were younger, Maurice and I, and that was, you got it from a head shop and it was 25 X or 32 X or whatever it was. Yeah. You'd take one hit and it's like, 
You know, it's you see these pictures of these but... fractals where it's like yeah. somebody holding up a, ca- a phone camera and then there's another one holding up a phone camera. It just keeps going down, you know, to these fractal yeah. pads. That's what it kind of like you're looking at this frame that's just infinitely fractal. That's what my experiences were most like. So, yeah, no, I agree. It's it's like it's like a little bit uh, dissociative. Yeah. Oh, is, yeah. Is, is the way I like to think of it. I also um, had the experience of um, ketamine. Both snorting and I shot it intramuscularly. A little John C. Lilly style, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I had an expert and I did it. And I I had a nice journey, but you know, some things talk to you and some things don't. Hmm. Right. Like, I'm done with alcohol. I've obviously, I used to joke. I think alcohol is the worst drug in my opinion. Yeah, it is. It's dead. You don't pull anything out of it. You know, it's not a very creative endeavor. Exactly. It's, It's deadening and dulling. As opposed right. to cannabis, I mean, you can smoke yourself into oblivion, but if you smoke a little bit of cannabis, you can really get opened up. Ayahuasca, LSD, and other psychedelics, they open you up, and I've just been more inclined to those things. And some substances just don't do anything yeah. for me, you know, and, and others do. Like, I tried heroin way back a couple times. Eh, not for me. But, you know, give me a mega dose of LSD, blow my brains out. I'm down with that. Well, even you mentioned cannabis. Sometimes I'll smoke, sometimes I'll be like, I get that paranoia you get from like psilocybin where it's like oh i gotta get my shit together what's going on here you know it's like that scary hyper aware you know um so even cannabis can do or an edible whatever um what about uh i also wanted to ask you about uh amanita muscaria because there's whole different you know ranges of reports some people say they like it they get something out of it some people say they don't some people smoke it some people make tincture you know what's have you ever tried it? Do you know people that have had psychedelic experiences with it? I, I did know people, and I knew a guy, and I'm, I'm bummed out because it fell through, but he had spent time in India, and he had had some recipe of Amanita with, um, like, lilies or something. or uh, Well, the blue lotus is a water lily that has aporphine, which is an active, psychoactive, like the Egyptians used to use it, I think, all the time. So he had this recipe, and I was going to have the experience. I was getting it all lined up, and then something happened with him uh, personally, and it didn't follow through. So something like that, I wouldn't. Anything along those lines that's that powerful and and somewhat exotic in the whole pharmacopoeia, I wouldn't do unless I knew absolutely for sure that the person I was working with really, really, really knew their stuff inside out and backwards. Sure. You know, that's why all the I've been blessed with the ayahuasca and the people I've uh, worked with. They have integrity. The guy who originally took me down, um, he had been going for 15 years prior to me going there. And one of the things that's happening in my life now is a lot of my mentors are getting old and dying off. And I find myself in the position of carrying the torch. Yeah, you're the mentor now. Yeah, exactly. Same in the writing world. Um and so I have to own that and I have to, without going off on some freaking guru-itis thing, you know. Hmm. Uh, but I have to own that. I've got a lot of knowledge and experience and I've been really uh, considering myself to be tremendously blessed. How many people get to go into the jungle and do, you know, hundreds, hundreds of ayahuasca journeys and embrace all of that knowledge um, that's just not readily available, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been really important for me. It's really important for me. It's why I like doing it like with you guys here. You guys are great, by the way. I love your good smart intelligent questions oh we appreciate i'm just curious uh, but we appreciate you know like people somebody like you that has all the knowledge and the experience and especially right now 
because even if we wanted to have an experience with the way that the world's set up with all this stuff going on, it's it's hard to get around. So we appreciate yeah. uh, people that have these amazing experiences and repositories of information. Yeah, yeah, I really I have a deep, deep obligation to carry the torch and to make sure that everybody's eyes are wide open, especially like you were saying, all these nutty people out there, or I'm a guru, or they're on the psychedelic list, and oh yeah, fuck you this, and blah, 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 <laughs> and, and I know you, and, uh, this, and I'm an expert on that. Yeah. Take a hike. Yeah. You know, run. Right. I just, I, I just don't understand. I, like I said, I mean, look. I mean, there was once a day where I would talk shit the best or, you know, with, you know, about sports and I'm going to get the better of this guy and I'm going to tell this guy what's up. And, yeah. uh, since I got into like, just, you know, knowledge and trying to better myself and, you know, occasional psychedelic use and pulling from that and stuff like that. I mean, um, cause here's the thing, right? I mean, in our younger, we've been, Maurice and I have been doing psychedelics. We've did episodes, our trip reports episodes. Uh, we've been doing them since we were in high school. And that might have been too early, but that's just when yeah. it happened. And uh, since then, I mean, I look back then, and I was still not a, you know, a, a great person. I wasn't a bad person. I was always a good, but just in the sense that, like, I would be a dick here or there or not think things out. And then it really, something clicked when I started, like, got to 30. I'm like, I got to change. I got to figure this out. And it was via psychedelics, via um, coming to understanding of my own mind and st and stuff like that. But, um, it's, it's weird that there are people, I've seen people like older that are participating in this kind of stuff. So it's, um, it's one of those things where I hope that that doesn't, you know, spoil the bunch. And you, as you mentioned, even with like the five MEO crazy stuff that's going on with that, you know, like that's, I, I worry about that stuff sometimes too, like that spoiling, that yeah. whole thing too, because there's obviously some uh, pharmacological use for that. We just don't know exactly what it is yet. And I think MAPS and uh, all these organizations are doing good work trying to figure out how can we implement these into society. Yeah. Part of it, you know, is it was repressed for so long. Like, have you ever heard of Charles Grobe, Charlie Grobe? He's another good friend of mine. Um, Charlie did the first federally approved study using psilocybin for death anxiety in terminally ill cancer patients. Yeah. And so Lorenzo- it's a hot topic in Canada right now. Yeah, this was back in the 90s. So Lorenzo, who does the psychedelic salon, and his wife, um, Mary C., was a former nurse. She was the head nurse of the study. And I was peripherally involved with that study, um, not, not in any official way, but I supplied music and um, I, I did other things, uh, which I won't mention because then I'll have to kill you. But, um, Watch out. There you go, yeah. But, but it, you know, everything he did was above board and legal and DEA approved. And it was one of the very first studies. So um, I've been championing, championing that. And I've discovered personally for me through my work, um, through my writing, is a matter of, um, for lack of better words, without sounding all hoity-toity, is spreading awareness. Because in the end, this journey, this path, is all about expanding awareness, consciousness expansion. That's really what the ultimate goal is about. And you got to face the shadow. You, you know, we all have to face, like you were saying, well, I used to be a dick. And, I, you know, I've had my <laughs> dick moments for sure, right? I'm probably also have, have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now when I'm a dick, I'm conscious of it. Sure. And I'm being a dick on purpose because 
um, I'm making a point and I'm calling in my inner dick uh, to come out. Richard. And, and Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to say Dick Nixon before he dicks you, right? And that's why <laughs> we have Maurice on the show right there, folks. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> but, you know, you got to, I mean, it's there and this stuff has all been run over by organized religion and all the Western scientific crap that's got us into such a, a mess that we're in now. So I've always been, wherever the crowd goes, I almost always run the other way. Because I figure if they're all going there, they're all sheeple. They must be onto something. I don't want to have anything to do it because it's, you know, quote unquote, um, the unwashed masses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to me, the education and what I've learned from people, and like I said, I've been so lucky to spend so much time, I mean, percentage-wise and everybody on the planet, how many people have gotten to experience what I've experienced, and I feel really blessed, and I don't take any of it for granted, and I paid some serious, serious dues um, on this path, and I'm, I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, my, my everyday-to-day life now um, is more and more dreamlike. And so I'm more, you know, in the end, I think the one, the two things I've come out of all of this with is acceptance and gratitude. Mm. Um, Those are two great things to uh, walk away with for sure. Oh, thank you, bro. And I, and I earned them. You know? Yeah, no, we appreciate you uh, going in the, the trenches and coming out with the knowledge so we can pass it on to the other people. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's really my purpose. It's, it's in my books. Um, and um, I, and I realize now I see younger people coming to me and and I and I've taken hundreds I man I've I've taken hundreds and hundreds of people on their first acid trips their first mushroom trips and if I never did anything ever ever again I'm totally fine but I do things now to facilitate I've been leading ceremonies now for 14 years um, because I paid the dues and all my mentors are all leaving the planet mm-hmm. so um, and even even down you know all the freaking ayahuasca tourism. And the stuff I see down there, it just makes me nuts. And I have them come up to me every once in a while, and they'll go, well, you know, you should come and do my thing. And I'll, and I'll write back, and I'll go, well, well, I've been doing that for 30 years. Oh, really? What do you think? You this, I was going to ask you, too. Like, what do you think the solution is to that? Because obviously people, you know, so since the Eleusinian Mysteries, the Western modern world hasn't really had a functioning, you know, psychedelic uh um, structure, heritage or structure, whatever, you know? So what do you think, what, what do you think that is? Do you think it's through science since that's what we've based our modern society off of? Or, I mean, what do you think, what's the solution? Because I think that these are helpful and there are a lot of dicks in America yes, that, that want to experience this. And I don't think we should demonize people either for wanting to find something else i think that you're right people take it too far and they get attached to the wrong elements of it or whatever the case may be but what how do we figure this out like what's the solution you know it's interesting because history repeats itself so there was a big uh, for lack of better words there was a big conflict in the 60s between timothy leary and aldous huxley are you familiar with Huxley? Yeah. Yeah. Doors of Perception. Yeah. We I just read, just read that, yeah. actually. Yeah, I just reread it again for like the fourth time. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good book to go back to. You pull something new out every time. Yeah, exactly. So the big conflict, Tim Tim Leary was like, turn on, tune in, and drop off, drop out. Everybody who asked it, let's all get high, la, 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 la. And Huxley was dead set against that. Mm-hmm. He's like, listen, we need to do things in a more organized way, in a more structured way, so people go in with their eyes open. Um, that they're actually getting 
things in a structured environment. So one of the things I love about um, ayahuasca ceremonies when you do it right is that everybody comes in, they state their intention, it's a structured environment, and they can go and become totally vulnerable and lose their mind and puke, shit, cry, scream, whatever they want in that safe container environment that allows them to work through their issues. So when you get these guruitis people who, who have a taste of it and think they suddenly know everything, um, and then they're leading people off and they don't know it, more than anything else, um, it's ignorance. And, and I don't mean necessarily, I don't really mean ignorance in the derogatory sense of the word. Right. You know, but Michael, you just said a little while ago, well, yeah, I remember, you know, before I was 30 and I was right. a dick. Well, well, shit, man, we're all dicks then. We don't know anything better, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then you, you grow and you expand and you suddenly get shown at some point, if you're really looking deep, which you guys clearly are, right? And you're looking and you're going, oh, shit, I was a dick. <laughs> Oh my God, right? right yeah. It, it ties into what I call my time travel theory. What's and my that? Time travel, so my time travel theory is this. If you go through an experience in your life, let's, and I'm just making, some, semi-making this up. This is semi-autobiographical. Okay. I was in with somebody who was a real, I got in a fight with a guy who was a real dick. And we got in a fight. And blah, blah happened. And I moved on and I thought, all oh, my life, what a dick. That guy's a fucking dick, right? And the fight that he and I got into was a co-creation because we both got into it, blah, blah. Right. Now, suddenly, 20, 25 years later, I'm in an ayahuasca vision, and I suddenly realize, oh, shit, I was a dick, too. Maybe I was even a bigger dick, right? Right. And I go, through that experience, and I relive it. And I go, fuck, Jesus, look, what a dick I was. And I realize it and I acknowledge it and I let go. And I and I, so that co-creation that I have with that quote unquote dick person, I let go and it's changed. Now when I'm going through my everyday present day life, that co-creation no longer exists. He's no longer a dick. Mm-hmm. I'm getting over my dickness, I hope. <laughs> right. So so then I call it time travel because I went back and by changing my perception of past experience going forward, I'm no longer carrying that. It's no longer a part of who I am. So then I may run across a dick and I can have some compassion for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this whole thing about uh, if you go. So one of the definitions of shamanism is the wounded healer. So if I discover my inner dick among many, and I always like to tell people I'm a cast of thousands, right? Sure. So um, I discover my inner dick, and I realize it, and I, f- and I have to forgive myself, and I let go of that. Then the next time I see somebody who's a dick, whereas in the past I would have judged them severely, now I can look at them and go, oh, man, I remember when I was there, and I can have some compassion for them, and I might even be able to help them if they're open to it. Mm-hmm. Because... I've acknowledged that and I see it for what it is, but when I was caught up in the middle of it, I, I had no idea whatsoever. But going forward, because I've done that and because I've learned to love myself or love that dick part of myself, I've accepted it. Then the gift of that is compassion and I can have that compassion. And then when I run across somebody who I used to severely judge and see them as a dick, I can have compassion and realize, oh shit, they're just like I was. And I know how I know why they're a dick. Right. Because I've been there. So to me, that's all part part of the growth 
And I like to think that all of our traumas and subpersonalities, I always like to think of it as trying to get the whole band to sing the same tune. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can respond in a, an appropriate way, and, and even if you may be being a little bit of a dick at the time, but you're fully consciously aware of it, that's a big difference, you know, as opposed to um, just going off. Sure. You know, I like to say, you, you move from the, uh, the inmates running the asylum to what I like to call witness consciousness or, or daddy's home or mommy's home, mm-hmm. you know. All right, you know, I tell them, I, and I do it half-jokingly, something pops up in me and I start getting all spun out and I go, all right, you little shit, get in your corner and shut up. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right? But it's like a loving way. Right. You know, you know okay. And then they do. Right? Um, one more little piece I want to add um, to this whole thing, and, it, and I'm just touching the surface on this. But in my experience working with ayahuasca and other plant medicines, the shift has gone from being uh, intellectually centered in my head to being heart-centered. And the heart actually has a greater density of synapses and, and neurons. There, actually, It's actually superior, even physiologically speaking. And there's a lot of speculation that when you're communicating with your heart, that's when you experience telepathy, which is what has happened um, to me in ayahuasca ceremonies. And, and it's gotten into my regular life from time to time also. Mm. But to go from being heart-centered, I'm sorry, from being head-centered to heart-centered, to me, is the path. And in shamanism, your heart is the center of your, the microcosm of your body. In in the ancient Egyptian temple of anthropocosmic man, they say it's a map of the human body and a map of the cosmos. And it's a very, I don't know if you ever heard of it or not, but it's a very exact... Temple of man, you know, Schwaller de Lubitz, that kind of... Exactly. You're on it, man. You're my hero. Yes, We've talked about it on the show. That's, I mean, ancient civilization and megalithic... I mean, that's all our main... main, Yeah. I mean, we love psychedelics too, but we started this out as that kind of a show. Yeah, yeah. So I I have a book, The Infinity Zone, that I wrote a lot about that. But But the point is this. In that temple, they say the heart is the center of the cosmos of the human body, which is also the center... And our sun, which is pure energy, mm-hmm. just hydrogen and helium, the two lightest physical elements that we have. And what does it do? It generates energy, and it gives energy unconditionally, and it gives life unconditionally. So in shamanism, the heart that's in our body is connected to the heart, to the, to the sun at the center of our solar system, to a bigger one, to a bigger one, to a bigger one, all the way back to source. That's the connection. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of shamanism is to become heart-centered. And it's what Castaneda used to say in his books. Um, uh, a warrior must follow a path with heart. Mm. So, you know, you have to acknowledge the feminine. I spent, I spent a big part of my life being a tough guy and ignoring any feminine. And boy, oh boy, when I started acknowledging it and I started tapping into those repressed emotions, my intuition just went nuts. Well, isn't that the the feminines associated with ayahuasca, Pachamama? Isn't that the? Yeah, well, Pachamama is Mother Earth. Pachatata is is Father Sky. And ayahuasca in shamanism um, is considered the dark feminine. So you know, there's the dark feminine, the light feminine, the dark masculine, the light masculine. Those are the primary archetypes. Mm-hmm. So you know, to break it down, even culturally speaking. Snow White would be the light feminine, and the evil witch would be the dark feminine. Okay. Um, but you have to acknowledge those, you know, those energies. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. Because 
Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you too about your, I know your book, your new book is called uh, Death, A Love Story, which it's kind of yeah. a funny title in yeah. in a way um, because most people fear and hate death, the idea of it. Um, yeah. So is this, what's this book about? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? And what, what are the, the, you know, what's the basis of it? Yeah, I've gotten mixed responses on it, but the reviews have been stellar. And here is the deal. I've been writing all these years. I've been teaching all these years. I was mentored by Bradbury and all those other wonderful people who helped me. And what I wanted to do in death, which I succeeded in, is the voice. So you may not be the greatest storyteller in the world, but if you have a voice, like in, in young adult novels, YA novels, the voice carries the story. If it's a voice that people listen to and they go, oh yeah, and they totally, I just, they don't even care, they're listening because they're caught in the voice. So I was working on the voice. And what I did, it basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like, it's a first person death. And death says, hi, I'm your death and I'm here for you. No, no, not in that way, at least not right now, at least I don't think so. Hmm. But I want you to know that I'm here for you and I'm always here for you and I've been here for you ever since you were born. And I'm actually in every cell of your being, in every micron of your existence, I'm in all of it. And I love you. And I've given you this life. And all, everything that you have and everything you experience is all a gift from me. And I can come anytime I want. I will come whenever I feel like it. We have a date. And I'm coming. But instead of depicting me as the Grim Reaper and all this dark stuff like, like you were just saying, I love you. My love for you is all, it's unconditional. It's all consuming. And I really can't wait for you to come home. And then I get very deeply into all the death beliefs of the world and, and different things like when a population gets out of control, a virus or something else will pop up and send it back into balance, whether we like it or not. One of the examples that, that inspired me of this is years years ago, there was a hantavirus outbreak in like Arizona. I think it was in Navajo. And the vector got out of control. So what had happened is, is they had heavier rains that year. They had more grasses that grew. And the kangaroo rat population got outside of its boundaries. And some of that vector got to some people and two or three people died. I think I've seen something similar and actually our favorite band fish had to cancel their run in colorado less it was because of uh like the plague and the prairie dogs in the area or something yeah. so so these things obviously do happen yeah so what, what what fascinated me about that is is once the kangaroo rat population got back to normal the virus disappeared hmm. Poof. and then you know there were things like when they reintroduced, the whole ecology was out of balance, and when they reintroduced wolves back into the wild, it changed the whole cycle because everything is all connected. Mm -hmm. Right. I know they're so, doing that all over the because of the, the feral pig populations in yeah, some states. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. The ecosystem's out of balance. Yeah. So in my humble opinion, nature always seeks balance. Mm. And I, in, in my humble opinion, that's what we're going through right now. Um, with this whole uh, pandemic and all the stuff, all the stupid stuff we've done as a race, and we're still ignoring, you know, environmentally, you know, we got the wildfires and the tornadoes and yeah. the hurricane, right? We, we got to take care of we, you know, we got to take care of everything. We got to take care of each other, and we got to take care of this planet. And I think that uh, hopefully, if we can, you know, do that, we can get things like you said back into balance and 
figure it out. Um, one, actually, do you have, can we, would you mind doing like a little Patreon, like a 10, 15 minute Patreon segment? Do you have another 10, 15 minutes? Right, dude, you, right now we scheduled this and you guys showed up and you own me, man. What do you, I'm, 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 hey. all right. So, so, so let's wrap it up here. Um, and then we can do, uh, we'll do, we'll record a Patreon here. So I'm just going to wrap it up here. Check out, uh, Matt's all, or all of his stuff is going to, I'm going to add all your links that you sent me before to the video afterwards. But right now you can check out his books. I have a link down below the video. Uh, go check out his new one, um, death, a love story. And he's got tons of books on tons of different topics. So go check those out. And, uh, do you, is there a specific social media uh, platform you use to communicate with people or? Yeah, I'm all over the place. The, the, uh, the home base is my webpage, mattpalamary.com. M-A-T-T-P as in Paul, A-L-L-A-M as in Mary, A-R-Y. And I got podcasts and video and audio and pictures and lectures. Yeah, I was listening to something you had on Apple. It was Mystic Inc. or something. Oh, like. yeah, that's a Mystic Inc. podcast. We're doing some of my short stories and chapters from my books for specific titles. Yeah, I was listening to some of this great stuff, so go check that out for oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting more into the audiobook stuff. Um, so there and then um, M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K publishing.com. Mystic Inc. Publishing, all one word, is, is where my books can be found. And there are also Amazon uh, print tree books, e-books, audiobooks. I've got some translations. They're, they're, they're all out there. Um, and awesome. anybody who on my webpage can hit, there's a contact form, so they can reach me there if they want to. Amazing. So go check those out for sure. And uh, we appreciate your time. Again, if you're listening to this right now, we are going to do an extended part for our Patreon for just $2 a month. You can get access to that. Uh, so if you want to check that out later, uh, I'll probably put it up later tonight and you can go to mind escape or go to patreon.com slash mind escape podcast. And uh, you can check out our website, mind escape podcast.com. Um, we are on all platforms, audio, and you know, if you're watching this uh, on YouTube, go check out our uh, audio stuff. And then uh, one last thing, why don't you head over to indrasweb.org and sign up to get an alert when the app goes live. I know I keep saying it's coming out soon, but we just had to fix a few things, and uh, I just wanted to wait a little bit till uh, the next week or so here, and uh, we'll get back into the rational discourse and connecting open minds and s stuff like that. So go there, sign up, and you'll get an alert when the app goes live. So we appreciate Cheers. that. And, uh, yeah, thanks, Matt, and uh, thank you for coming on. This has been fascinating and illuminating, and uh, it's people like you that share their experiences that help people like us that haven't had those experiences understand the nature of uh, reality and altered states and things of that ilk so we appreciate it oh thank you and bless you both you guys did a great job great questions and keep up the good work um well you're you're welcome on anytime we'll definitely get you back thank on you. here for sure right. oh, i love it man you guys are great you guys are intelligent i like intelligent people well we love you <laughs> man you, and sir. you're intelligent as well so everybody stay safe thank out there we love everybody and uh we'll catch you next time peace mm -hmm.